Chapter 16 of Aircraft and Submarines by Willis J. Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Submarine Warfare, Part 3. More interest in submarine warfare than ever before was aroused in this country when the German war submarine U-53 unexpectedly made its appearance in the harbor of Newport, Rhode Island, during the afternoon of October 7, 1916. About three hours afterwards, without having taken on any supplies, and after explaining her presence by the desire of delivering a letter addressed to Count von Bernstorff, then German ambassador at Washington, the U-53 left as suddenly and mysteriously as she had appeared. This was the first appearance of a foreign war submarine in an American port. It was claimed that the U-53 had made the trip from Wilhelmshaven in 17 days. She was 213 feet long, equipped with two guns, four torpedo tubes, and an exceptionally strong wireless outfit. Besides her commander, Captain Rose, she was manned by three officers and 33 men. Early the next morning, October 8th, it became evident what had brought the U-53 to this side of the Atlantic. At the break of day, she made her reappearance southeast of Nantucket. The American steamer Canson of the American Hawaiian Company, bound from New York by way of Boston to Genoa, was stopped by her, but after proving her nationality and neutral ownership, was allowed to proceed. Five other steamships, three of them British, one Dutch, and one Norwegian, were less fortunate. The British freighter Strathand, of 4,321 tons, was the first victim. Her crew were taken aboard the Nantucket Shoals light ship. Two other British freighters, West Point and Stefano, followed in short order to the bottom of the ocean. The crews of both were saved by United States torpedo boat destroyers who had come from Newport as soon as news of the U-53's activities had been received there. This was also the case when the crews of the Dutch Bloomersdick and the Norwegian tanker Christian Knudsen that often in recent years has there been put on American naval officers quite so disagreeable a restraint as duty enforced upon the commander of the destroyers who watched the destruction of these friendly ships. Almost within our own territorial waters, by an arrogant foreigner who gave himself no concern over the rescue of the crews of the sunken ships, but seemed to think that the function of the American men of war. It was no secret at the time that sentiment in the Navy was strongly pro-ally. Probably, had it been wholly neutral, the mind of any commander would have revolted at the spectacle of wanton destruction of property and callous indifference to human life. It is quite probable that had this event occurred before the invention of wireless telegraphy had robbed the Navy commander at sea of all initiative, there might have happened off Nantucket something analogous to the famous action of Commodore Tatnall when, with the cry, blood is thicker than water, he took a part of his crew to the aid of British vessels sorely pressed by the fire of certain Chinese forts on the Yellow River. As it was it is an open secret that one commander appealed by wireless to Washington for authority to intervene. He did not get it, of course. No possible construction of international law would give us rights beyond a three-mile limit. He had at least, however, the satisfaction when the German commander asked him to move his ship to a point at which it would not interfere with the submarine's fire upon one of the doomed vessels, of telling him to move his own ship 
and accompanying the suggestion with certain phrases of elaboration thoroughly american the rapid development of submarine warfare naturally made it necessary to find ways and means to combat this new weapon of naval warfare much difficulty was experienced especially in the beginning because there were no precedents and because for a considerable period everything that was tried had necessarily to be of an experimental nature to protect harbors and bays was found comparatively easy nets were spread across their entrances they were made of strong wire cables and to judge from the total absence of submarines within the harbors thus guarded they proved a successful deterrent in most cases they were supported by extensive minefields the danger of these to submarines however is rather a matter of doubt for submarines can dive successfully under them and by careful navigating escape unharmed the general idea of fighting submarines with nets was also adopted for areas of open water which were suspected of being infested with submarines recently serious doubts have been raised concerning the future usefulness of nets reports have been published that german submarines have been fitted up with a wire and cable cutting appliance which would make it possible for them to break through nets at will supposing of course that they had been caught by the nets in such a way that no vital parts of the underwater craft had been seriously damaged a sketch of this wire cutting device was made by the captain of a merchantman who while in a small boat after his ship had been torpedoed had come close enough to the attacking submarine to make the necessary observations the sketch showed an arrangement consisting of a number of strands of heavy steel hawsers which were stretched from bow to stern passing through the conning tower and to which were attached a series of heavy circular knives a foot in diameter and placed about a yard apart even as early as january nineteen fifteen mr simon lake the famous american submarine engineer and inventor published an article in the scientific american in which he dwelt at length on means by which a submarine could escape mines and nets one of the illustrations accompanying this article showed a device enabling submarines traveling on the bottom of the sea to lift a net with a pair of projecting arms and thus pass unharmed under it many other devices to trap sink or capture submarines have been invented a large number of these of course have been found impracticable others however have been used with success few details of any of these have been allowed to become known the most dangerous power of submarines is their ability to approach very closely to their object of attack without making their presence known to their prey this naturally suggested that a way be found to detect the presence of submarines early enough to make it possible to stave off an attack or even to assume the offensive against the underwater boat a recent invention the perfection of which is due to the work of mr william duvillier an american electrical engineer and of professor tissot a member of the french academy of science is the microphone few details are known about this instrument except that it records sound waves at as great a distance as fifty-five miles this would permit in most cases the calling of patrol boats or the use of other defensive means before the submarine would be able to execute an attack at the present moment it would appear that the most dangerous enemy of the submarine yet discovered is the airplane or the dirigible some figures as to the mortality among submarines due to the efforts of aircraft have been published in an earlier chapter 
The chief value of aircraft in this work is due to the fact that objects under the water are readily discernible at a considerable depth when viewed from a point directly over them. An illustration familiar to every boy is to be found in the fact that he can see fish at the bottom of a clear stream from a bridge, while from the shore the refraction of the water is such that he can see nothing. From the air, the aviator can readily see a submarine at a depth of 50 feet, unless the water is unusually rough or turbid. The higher he rises, the wider is his sphere of vision. With the lurking craft thus located, the airman can either signal to watching destroyers or may bide his time and follow the submarine until it rises to the surface, when a well-placed bomb will destroy it. Both of these methods have been adopted with success. For a time, the submarines were immune from this form of attack because of the difficulty of finding a bomb which would not explode on striking the surface of the water, thus allowing its force to be dissipated before it reached the submarine, or else would not have its velocity so greatly checked by the water that on reaching the submarine, the shock of its impact would not be great enough to explode it at all. Both of these difficulties have been overcome. The new high explosives have such power, taken in connection with the fact that water transmits the force of an explosion undiminished to a great distance, that many of them exploding at the surface will put out of action a submarine at a considerable depth. Furthermore, bombs have been invented, which, being fired, not merely dropped from an airplane, will go through the water with almost undiminished momentum, and explode on striking the target or after a period fixed by the assailant. Other bombs, known as depth bombs, are fitted with flanges that revolve as they sink, causing an explosion at any desired depth. About the actual achievements of the airplane as a foe to submarines, there hangs a haze of mystery. It has been the policy of the Allied governments to keep secret the record of submarines destroyed, and particularly the methods of destruction but we know that a few have met their fate from bolts dropped from the blue in the outlook lawrence latourette driggs himself a flying man of no contemptible record describes the method and result of such an attack after recounting the steps by which a brother airman attained a position directly above a submerged submarine preparatory to dropping his bomb he says down shot his plummet of steel and neatly parted the waters ahead of the laboring submarine but it did not explode i could see a whirling metal propeller on the torpedo revolve as it sank it must have missed the craft by twenty feet suddenly a column of water higher than my position in the air stood straight up over the sea then slipped noiselessly back by all that is wonderful how did that happen as we covered the spot again and again in our circling machines we were joined by two more pilots and finally by a fast clipper steam yacht the surface of the water was literally covered with oil breaking up the ripple of the waves and smoothing a huge area into gleaming bronze here and there floated a cork belt odd bunches of cotton waste a strip of carpet and a wooden three-legged stool these fragments alone remained to testify to the corpus delecti philip i said half an hour later as the hot coffee was thawing out our insides what kind of a civilized bomb do you call that that bears a simple little title of Trinitrotoluol, call it TNT for short, replied Sergeant Pierron. But what made it hang fire so long, I demanded. It's made to work that way. When the bomb begins sinking, the little propeller is turned as it is pulled down through the water. 
it continues turning until it screws to the end. There it touches the fuse pin and that sets off the high explosive. At any depth you arrange it for. I regarded him steadfastly. Then I remarked, but it did not touch the submarine. I saw it miss. Yes, you can miss it fifty yards and still crush the submarine. He took up an empty eggshell. The submarine is hollow like this. She is held rigidly on all her sides by the water. Water is non-compressible like steel. Now, when the TNT explodes, even some distance away, the violent expanding concussion is communicated to this hollow shell just as though a battering ram struck it. The submarine can't give any because the surrounding water holds her in place. So she crumbles up like this. Piran opened his hands and the flakes of eggshell fluttered down until they struck the floor. Gunfire undoubtedly is still the most reliable preventive against submarine attacks. Comparatively small calibered guns can cause serious damage to submarines even by one well-directed shot. Submarines have been sunk both by warships and merchantmen in this way, and many more have been forced to desist from attacks. Not every merchantman, of course, can be equipped with the necessary guns and gunners. Neither equipment nor men can be spared in sufficient quantities. But the efficiency of gun protection has been proved beyond all doubt by many authentic reports of successful encounters between armed merchantmen and submarines in which the latter were defeated. Ramming, too, has been advocated and tried. It is, however, a procedure involving considerable danger to the attacking boat. For one thing, all the submarine has to do is to dive quick and deep enough and is out of harm's way. Then, too, the chances are that the submarine can launch a torpedo in time to reach the ramming vessel before the latter can do any damage. There have been reports of submarine duels between Austrian and Italian submarines in the Adriatic, in which it was claimed that in each at least one submarine was destroyed, and at least in one instance both the duelists were sunk. Generally speaking, the fact has been established, however, that submarines cannot fight submarines with any degree of success, except in exceptional cases and under exceptional conditions. Since the outbreak of the war between the United States and Germany, the question of combating the submarine has become more acute than ever. The latest development has been along negative rather than affirmative lines. It has apparently been decided that none of the devices, known at present and capable of destroying submarines, is sufficient either alone or in combinations to defeat the submarines decisively. The best means of balancing as much as possible the losses which German submarines are inflicting on the shipping facilities of the Allies at the present seems to be the unlimited and prompt building of large fleets of comparatively small ships. If this can be accomplished in time, the German submarines undoubtedly will find it impossible to destroy a tonnage sufficient to exert any great influence on the final outcome of the war. End of Submarine Warfare, Part 3 Recording by William Tomko